0: Welcome to the Scholarly Kitchen Podcast for May 29th, 2013. I'm Stuart Wills from Science Magazine. If you've been following the Scholarly Kitchen blog over the course of this year, you have probably seen a series of investigative posts by the kitchen's head chef, Kent Anderson, starting this past February, alleging improperly favorable treatment by PubMed Central for a select group of publications, notably the new high-profile journal eLife. The main tool used in the investigation was the Federal Freedom of Information Act, or FOIA, which allows U.S. citizens to request access to records of various federal agencies. The posts garnered a fair amount of attention and discussion at the time. They also stoked some interest, uh, for me at least, in just how one undertakes an investigation like this, the nuts and bolts, if you will, of an FOIA request and what follows. I have Kent Anderson on the line today to give us some of the backstory on this series. Uh, Kent, thanks for dropping in. Yeah, hi, Stuart. Uh, I guess the first question I have is, where in the world did you find the time to do all of this?
1: Yeah, stolen moments, until the batch of material got very large uh, in January, February. Basically, you know, an email here, an email there, and then reading the material as, as it went.
0: Well, so let's go back. Let's go back and talk about that. What got you started in this inquiry in the first place, and how did you come to resort to an FOIA request?
1: So in October of 2012, I was at a strategic retreat for a society publisher. They were talking about innovative approaches to scholarly publishing, so they wanted me and other people there, and they were talking about open access and other ideas, and so there are other open access publishers there. And during the course of the presentations and discussions, it became clear that the group was somewhat confused about how PubMed Central and PubMed and Medline related and what inclusion in PubMed, Central included, did it include PubMed, and so on. And as part of that discussion, the recent publication of eLife articles on PubMed Central was also mentioned and a number of the open access publishers were irate actually because they had been applying following the guidelines of PubMed Central for inclusion in PubMed Central and had been told about all sorts of things like article minimums and file supply and, and the ability to publish independently. And here was eLife publishing first on PubMed Central with fewer than 30 articles and without having demonstrated any independent publishing capabilities, and they weren't scheduled to demonstrate that until months from the date this was being discussed. So from there, I started to, I wanted to verify that it actually happened. I tried to talk with people, and as part of the discussions, I reached out to David Lipman of PubMed Central and NCBI and NLM. And he, did, he had an email exchange, then asked him for a phone interview, and during the course of the phone interview, um, and I've known David off and on for a number of years, he his behavior wasn't quite what I expected. He was aggressive, uh, bellicose, trying to talk over me, and that raised my suspicions even more that there was more going on here. He was somewhat uncomfortable, and that was unusual. He's usually a very poised and comfortable individual. So I tried to ask other people. I wrote a post that kind of laid out what I was seeing and a couple of others about what it might imply and looked at some of the minutes from PubMed Central National Advisory Committee to get more information and tie some things together. But I couldn't get very far. So then it just occurred to me that the Freedom of Information Act is there for a purpose, and this would be a way to just see exactly what happened. So that's why I went ahead and explored that option.
0: Well, how does one actually do that? Uh, Take us through some of the steps of actually doing a request of this type
1: it's really straightforward I have to applaud the government for actually doing something quite well in this I think in that each agency appears as far as I can tell I didn't do a comprehensive review appears to have a Freedom of Information Act officer and office and you simply find that through a Google search and then you follow their instructions for submitting a request this case it was a letter and it's basically an old-fashioned web search you give time parameters and terms that you want them to look for and then they go off and look for that on your behalf. And you know, I did a not a great job with my first formulation of the letter. I had too great a time frame and too many terms in it. And they were nice enough to call up and say, "All right, so here's how it works. We start at the earliest date that you request, we search for every term, and then we move on to the next date, we search for every term. So if you want all of these dates and all of those terms, it's going to be a long time before you get any results." Hmm. So Please revise your search parameters, essentially. Submit a letter with fewer search terms in the real time frame you're after, and we'll start on that. And I did that, and things proceeded from there.
0: Okay, so you made the request. H- how long did it take? What did you finally receive, and in what form?
1: It took about two weeks from filing it and iterating on it before I received the materials. The materials would come in a standard manila envelope with my name handwritten on it sent to my home address. The other thing you have to do when you uh, make this request is the government provides, I think, $250 per request in photocopying and other expenses that they'll absorb. And you have to say that beyond that, you'll cover the cost up to another X dollar amount. And I believe I said I'd do another $250 on top of that. And then if it gets bigger than that, they'll come back to you. And uh, you have to pay more. So you do have to pay your freight.
0: But this was all coming to you in hard copy then?
1: Yeah, they make photocopies of emails, of documents, of attachments to emails. So I was getting, you know, copies of PowerPoint, presentations of emails, of internal memoranda, of PDFs, I'm guessing, uh, because they were, you know, I could find some of these things online in PDF form like the minutes of the National Advisory Committee and whatnot. Uh, But it all comes as paper sheets. And if email chains occur, you tend to get, you know, each person's version of the chain at each point in time. Oh, my God. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you have a lot of a lot of papers, but you know when they when they branch it's really interesting too because you can see, you know, maybe someone was cut out of an email at a certain point or was BCC'd and you know so you get some of that information too just by virtue of the thoroughness and you know the term of their of art is, you know, these documents were responsive to your request and so you know that's I think a very nice term because it's neutral. It's just you made this request, here's your response. Mm-hmm. And they mark them carefully with some coding that they must understand, but it at least helps you differentiate because you get all of these documents, you know, 100, 200, 300 pages at a time. And you have to sort through them. And so it's a lot.
0: Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a, a huge welter of material <laughs> that you've got. How did you How did you actually go about trolling through it and sort of separating the wheat from the chaff?
1: So the initial pieces were from 2010 and they weren't all that interesting there were things i would seen before or they were very pedestrian office correspondence you know how are we going to get doctor x to location y and what's the travel budget for this and are you working on this presentation and who's doing the agenda for this meeting all that kind of stuff was easy to sort of set aside but later as things became meatier then i started to just arrange things chronologically i would you know say okay here's the, the year and then i would just stack things up from top to bottom chronologically and that later helped assemble the story, because ultimately this was a story that was unfolding.
0: In, in the course of that story, were there any sort of real, and, and, and in dredging through this material, were there any sort of real eureka moments that you remember?
1: You know, I think Archimedes was probably happy when he discovered the theory of displacement. <laughs> um, this was more of a sinking feeling, and it came suddenly, because there were a couple of little indications early on, and I want to say for the record that I went into this, the Freedom of Information Act request, perfectly willing to acknowledge that if if I got through all the information and there was no smoking gun, there was nothing that I thought was uh, beyond the pale in there, I would have written a post and said, I did this, it worked great, and I found nothing. So, you know, my initial suspicions were wrong. But I did find things and I published about those. But in any event, toward the end, when the real meaty information came through, the feeling I had was not a eureka moment, it was a sinking feeling. And it was a sense of obligation, too. It was, all right, this is as bad as I thought it might be, in some ways worse than I thought it might be. And now I have a lot of work in front of me to tell it correctly. And, you know, that includes scanning documents and recreating emails and typing out emails verbatim, including typos and grammatical errors and things like that, and then putting it all together. So it was a sinking feeling on two fronts. I was disappointed to find what I found, and I was daunted by the amount of work i'd gotten myself into
0: but it but it all did come through in a in a series of postings on the blogs, as I mentioned, starting uh, in early February of this year, and as I noted at the outset, these did get a lot of attention from the community. Uh, some of the commenters right. even suggested the need for some sort of uh, federal response. Has there been any additional outcome from all of this? Has anyone taken this sort of further up the chain
1: I'm not sure if anyone has. And I think as we're learning with the current situation with the IRS, some of these OIG actions, you know, run quietly for a good period of time before there's any outcome um, or things are pushed up the chain. So I don't, I don't know for sure that there has been anything done. I know that people made fairly concrete statements about what they were going to do. Mm-hmm. And if they did those, then there may be things in the works that we don't know about. But I don't know of anything specifically.
0: So from your perspective, though, has this investigation pretty much uh, run its course as far as you're concerned? I mean, you've got what sounds like a pretty busy year ahead, uh, taking the reins at uh, SSP, etc.
1: Well, the one thing about a Freedom of Information Act request that I've learned is that once you have one established, you can expand it. So one of the things that I found that I didn't expect to find in the first pass was to find eLife and people from PubMed Central discussing how to coordinate their response to an inquiry that Peter Binfield wrote about Pure J's experience trying to file for inclusion in PubMed Central and why eLife seemed to have gotten advantageous treatment. And they, in the emails, it shows them coordinating how they can say the same thing without looking like they've consulted with each other so they can look like they're working independently. And I didn't expect to find that. And so I... You know, subsequently filed an extension that included Peter J in the search, uh, so that I could see if there were other documents that didn't really really yield anything more. Um, but I can continue to expand this, and I, I may because there are a couple of other things that have come out in the emails since then uh, that may merit some expansion. So I don't know that it's done, but I think that what we found was pretty significant.
0: Oh, Ken Anderson, thanks very much. Thank you. And thank you for dropping in to the Scholarly Kitchen podcast for May 29, 2013. Be sure to visit scholarlykitchen.sspnet.org, where every day, the kitchen's team of pundit chefs serves up a fresh helping of what's hot and cooking in the scholarly publishing world. Thanks to the Society for Scholarly Publishing for its support of this project and for hosting our audio files, and to the American Association for the Advancement of Science for use of its studio and production facilities. This is Stuart Wills from Science Magazine. Until next time, on behalf of SSP and all of the chefs in the scholarly kitchen, Bon Appetit!